This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with the President, a podcast series about diversity in the legal profession. I'm Canadian Bar Association President Ray Adlington. I'm a cisgendered, straight white man who became a successful lawyer and law firm leader without having to face discrimination based upon my gender identity, race, physical abilities, or sexual orientation. This podcast is my way of learning about those who have had to face these kinds of obstacles and maybe identifying ways the CBA can help the profession move toward a more inclusive future. In this episode, I'll be talking with a couple of LGBTQ2S plus lawyers about their experiences within the Canadian legal system. Preston Parsons was called to the bar in 2011 and is well known to many within the CBA community. He's past chair of the Young Lawyers section and was a co-chair of the CBA BC branch, Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Community, or SOGIC. He's currently an associate at Overholt Law in Vancouver, where he practices in the area of labor relations, employment law, and human rights law. Welcome to the podcast, Preston. Thank you very much, Ray. Preston, I know you're a relatively young guy, so you don't have to go too far back to your days as a student at UBC. I understand you've been open about your sexuality since the age of 19, and I'm wondering how you felt at that time about openly declaring yourself as a gay man. Well, at that time, um, you know, that was a tricky you know, thing being open. Um, you know, I, at the time I was living in, you know, relatively rural Alberta, all things considered. Um, you know, I grew up on a family farm out there. Um, at the, at the time I was living in Lloydminster, which is a town of about 23,000 people over on the Alberta Saskatchewan border, about 23,000 at the time at least. And, and, uh, you know, it's really like, you know, I knew of, you know, maybe a couple, People who were gay, but they certainly weren't that open about it. Um, if they were, they weren't treated well for it. It was really, you know, a conversation with my with my mother and then my family that really started that process and and stuff. So that's that's really how I came out at 19. And 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 yeah, it was not an easy an easy thing to do. It was uh, I, I recognized at the time that I could lose. Um, a significant number of my friends, many of whom were were quite religious um, in you know various different forms of Christianity or otherwise. And but at the time, I you know thought, well, I'm just not going to be able to move forward really with my life in the way that I'd like to without doing this. And and once I realized I had the support of my family and things, then I felt um, you know a little bit more invincible at that point and thought, well, okay, if I've got my family behind me, I can I can more boldly do this. And and much to my um, you know great blessing, um, I really didn't lose any friends over it either. Um, in fact, most people. When I told them that, hey, I've got I've got something I really really need to sit down and talk with you about, the response was typically, oh, oh, we know, we've been waiting for this conversation for years. Um, so, and and I kept repeating, well, no, no, this is actually this is something very very important. I want to have like a serious conversation with you, and they're like, no, no, we know. I you know realized at least in the circles that I was in with my family and friends that I hadn't put enough faith in other people, um, in their ability to to continue to welcome me and and you know accept me as who I was, and um, and yeah, I you know really from that point forward have never really looked back. I'd like to sort of change gears and talk about the evolution of the LGBTQ experience within the legal profession. Uh, It was 1995 when Judge Harry Brownstone was the first openly gay person to become a judge in Canada. 20 years later, in 2015, Judge Cale McKenzie became the first transgender person appointed to the bench in Canada. So it's clear that we've made some progress culturally. 
But even as late as uh, 11 years ago, Judge Brownstone told the Globe and Mail that gay lawyers often feel discriminated against and that it's a career-limiting move to come out at work. And I'm interested in understanding your experience as an openly gay man in the legal profession. Is it the same, or have we evolved a little bit since 1995? You know, I think... I do think we've evolved certainly since 95 and, and, you know, in terms of context, I started, I was applying for law schools in, you know, early 2006, I, or late 2005, I went to law school in 2007 through 2010. I articled uh, 2010, 2011, and I practiced ever since. So that gives um, a good time capsule for, for where I entered the profession. But so, so yeah, like I come, I come to Vancouver, I come to, to UBC law and it's this very, in comparison for me, extremely liberal environment, very liberating. And, and that was something that I really sought out in law school. I, you know, accepted and went to one of the, you know, highest ranked gay friendly schools in the country, um, at UBC law. And, and for me, I had a very good experience. And so that was a, a real serious question I had back in 2007, like, okay, like, great. I'm, I came to law school to be out and I am, um, and you know, and that's great. I, I really don't want to go back into the closet to go out into the workforce. I don't want to do that. And and at the time, I had um, I, I was applying for for jobs quite early in law school. Um, I tried for the first year summer race and then going to the second year summer race. And and I can't remember at what point I was having the conversation, but I had a conversation at the time with um, some folks at UBC's Career Services. And this conversation, you know, I provide as context and background at the time. I certainly don't begrudge the conversation. I I, I was thankful for it. Um, but, you know, at the time I was sat down and, and told, you know, Preston, we, you know, we, we've, everything that we're about to tell you is not a reflection at all on, on, you know, who you are or anything. We, we were very proud of who you are and the student that you are and things. Um, but, you know, our job is really to focus on your, your best career interests and things. And so, you know, we just, we wanted to at least just put out there that, you know, having things like you being a chair of outlaws and stuff on your resume, um, it could, could well limit. Um, you know, what firms decide to interview you, um, you know, they might see that on there. And if they're the, the person reviewing it is homophobic at all or whatnot, they might just shred your application before, before it even truly gets vetted and, and things. And, and I, my response to that was, you know, I, I, th I thanked them. Um, I said, you know, I appreciate that advice and, and I appreciate you looking out for me. And, um, you know, at the same time, I really, really don't want to go and work at a firm that would be so prejudiced that they would shred my resume right off the bat when they see that I chaired a student club. So if, uh, if in fact, um, the firm would do such a thing, then I would rather them shred it and me not even interview there because I really wouldn't want to work there and, and be trapped in that environment. So, so I had a very good set of mentors and people to help me into the profession and guide me. Um, I've never been subjected to any issues with respect to it. I found uh, in Vancouver in particular, um, you know, where I practice, um, that generally speaking, people are, are enlightened in the profession. And, and I just, I've never had anybody that I've worked with in any of the three firms that I've been at. I've never had anybody at events, anything really say anything negative to me. People still ask, um, you know, as you talked about the evolution of this through the profession, you know, me now being, um, 
you know, eight years out of law school, um, you know, students still ask. It's still a question. Can, you know, should I be out on my resume? Should I edit it? And at the same time, I recognize that Vancouver is a bit of a, a bubble and there are, you know, Vancouver's experience is not necessarily what it's going to be like for a student articling in the interior or even in other parts of the lower mainland further out from Vancouver proper. Um, the attitudes um, can shift and things. But, but yeah, I think overall the you know, it's bending towards where we want it to go. I think overall society is becoming more accepting. We're very lucky in Canada to, to have the, you know, democracy that we do, the freedoms that we enjoy and do. And, and I think, um, you know, we're, we're seeing these, the slow incremental benefits of all of this over time. And uh, in a study of large firms that was published last year, legal academics at the University of Windsor said that most of the time for gay white male lawyers like yourself, the problem isn't so much overt discrimination as it is the heteronormative nature of the office, although that can be different for racialized lawyers who are also gay. And one person interviewed for the paper said he had to calibrate his gayness for the audience. And I'm wondering if you've ever felt that way or if you've heard others who have felt that way. Um, I've certainly heard others feel that way. I And I, I know that I do it. Um, absolutely. I know that I calibrate my behavior depending on the settings and things. Um, you know, I, I don't consider myself to be over the top flamboyant, generally speaking. Um, and I don't necessarily consider that to be bad. And in some cases, it's super fun. But um, but uh, yeah, I certainly, you know, have tempered my, my, you know, wardrobe choices that, you know, I think I'm over, I, th I think in many cases, we tend to be either very brash with like, you know, the, the, like, for instance, a lot of gay male lawyers might be very brash in selecting the clothes that they wear, because they, they want to make a statement, and others that are deliberately very self conscious about it. And they're like, well, if I wear this, this, you know, this pink shirt, is that stereotypical? Um, should I not wear the pink shirt or should I wear a quieter pink shirt, something subtler, or should I just go to the white shirt like everybody else has and, and things and, and, you know, you know, well, what are people going to think? Are they going to think, well, that I'm just like, uh, you know, in, in, am I going to get teased for not being like a fun gay if I'm wearing a boring suit like everybody else and, and not wearing the pink shirt? These, you know, these are questions that, you know, that occasionally cycle through your mind, you get, um, you know, sort of the stereotypical thing that, well, because you're, because you're gay, you must have good fashion sense kind of thing and stuff. And so then you feel like you have to like, you know, basically up your wardrobe game in order to, to, um, you know, fit that, that stereotype, even if you aren't naturally inclined to be good with fashion. Um, so yeah, like I, I definitely have calibrated my behavior in different situations. Um, you know, the the profession is, and you know, and the world is really um, society is still quite heteronormative, um, generally speaking, and and you know, and that's and 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 certainly um, you know, binary. If you want to you know move the conversation towards um, you know certainly the experience of trans members of society and 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 those of our profession you know the, you know, the world is, is still set up in, an, in a very binary way and things so so heteronormative binary that those things are are stuff that you run into um, frequently it's as I mentioned um, you know it's, you I, I that's why I still have to come out you know a lot because people assume that um, that uh, you know, I have a girlfriend or a you know wife or a female partner. Um, so that's a constant evolution. And in my per interpersonal relationships and professional relationships, is having to have that conversation. Um, 
you know, just more and more, I, I do notice that people just, at, you know, if they're going to, to get to the point of asking you, they just ask if you have a, you know, a partner and it's not um, a gendered term and, and things. And, and that I think is just a, you know, an evolution and, and, you know, language and, in you know, the certainly, certainly, yes, it's, there's a lot of heteronormativity. Um, and, and that's just, that's, the way the world has been it's uh it's what's been recognized for a significant period of time in history and and so you know you 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 know we can sort of we being members of the lgbt community um you know in some respects have to um you know be be activists a bit in certain respects on that and in in certain respects i think have to recognize that some things take time and and some shifts don't happen overnight and and you know we, at the same time a lot of this has been a long time coming and and there's different definition you know there's there's a wide range of 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 things that could happen on a scale of heteronormativity and things and my final question is going to take us back to the beginning of this conversation about how your friends knew before you officially came out and I'm wondering what advice you would provide to parents or siblings or other close friends who might believe that somebody is gay, lesbian, bisexual, or trans about how to demonstrate their support for the community to help ease the stress of the decision as to whether or not to be open about their, the individual sexuality. How can loved ones provide support in advance? You know, that's an awesome question. Um, it's a question that my, like my parents grappled with. Um, you know, we had these conversations more when I, you know, after I came out, my, my parents said, you know, we, we thought maybe this was a possibility, like as young as when you were five, we were having conversations with other people about it. The best piece of advice I can give to, you know, family members or friends that think their friend might be, uh, or friend or family member might be, um, you know, gay or lesbian or trans and, and is struggling with that question and things is, you know, you can, there are ways to, um, create space, um, for them to feel more comfortable, um, you know, by, by not asking them if they have a girlfriend or boyfriend, um, at school, um, by, you know, asking them if they've, they've met anybody if, by asking them if they, you know, have a partner to take to the dance. Um, you know, the, that type of neutral language, um, you know, can make a big shift and, and indicate to somebody, Hey, maybe, um, you know, okay, they're, they're a bit more enlightened on this, on this thing. They're not, they're not assuming that I have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Um, and, you know, stuff like that can help. Um, and, I, and I've always said, you know, make, make space for the conversation subtly, but you don't need to necessarily come out and say, hey, are you gay? Um, you know, that can be a very, uh, unless space has been made for that conversation in advance and it's done respectfully, um, it's likely going to put the person in a, in a very defensive position where they're not going to want to answer. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it's, you know, it's, they'll, they'll, I usually say, you know, they'll come to you in time for now the best thing you can do is, is yeah try to be a good ally to the to the community and demonstrate that by by you know just you know adjusting your language choices you know things like that and those those will be noticed and anyways i think those subtle things um making space for the conversation altogether i think that's the best thing that they can do and then and then it's up to the individual in time to to come out when they feel most comfortable My next guest is Nicole Nussbaum. Nicole is an Osgood Hall graduate and staff lawyer with Legal Aid Ontario in London. 
She specializes in the areas of human rights, employment, and family law. She has a particular focus on gender-related legal issues and extensive experience with policy work related to gender identity and gender expression. Nicole is a past chair and current member at large of the CBA's Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Conference, or SOGIC for short. She also has more than a decade of experience practicing as an openly trans lawyer. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thanks, Ray. It's great to be here. Thank you. I understand that you chose to transition several years after your call to the bar, and I'm interested in why you chose to do it then. Well, for me, transition wasn't um, what I would consider a standard choice. I recall my earliest childhood memories, uh, crying myself to sleep every night, wishing and hoping, and in fact, praying to God that in the morning I would uh, wake up right as a girl. Um, But, you know, growing up uh, in an Orthodox Jewish family um, and in our Canadian society where there was no visibility for trans people and uh, it wasn't an option, it was something that... uh, there was a lot of active denial and repression uh, for many years. But then um, when I had what I call a gender attack, when I was about uh, 28, um, transition was just something I, I could not choose uh, to not do. Um, so it was actually uh, really debilitating, something akin to intense anxiety and depression It was something that had built up over, uh, I think, many years, and my ability to sort of repress it and suppress it and deny it just sort of broke down. So what impact has the transition had upon your legal career? So being trans has actually, I think, had quite a positive uh, impact on my legal career. Um, I would say around my transition, it was was a lot more negative. Um, And so when I transitioned, I was dealing with a lot of alienation uh, from friends and community. I had some negative experiences in terms of uh, some of the people that I'd worked with and and, uh, thought to be friends with. You know, a a little while after I I came out, sort of suggested that I shouldn't come around the office anymore because it made uh, certain people there uncomfortable. Um, You know, so there were definitely some negatives uh, at the same time, I had amazing support from so my, my law school friends in particular were among the most supportive people uh, that I had at that time. Uh, and in fact, they made a little brunch party for me and uh, got me some gift certificates to the mall so that I could uh, help work on my wardrobe. <laughs> they had a, a tremendously positive effect uh, on me and, and made me feel like at least I had uh, support from people uh, in the legal community and, and in the profession and, and my, my peers. So that had a, a really meaningful impact on me. Well, thank you for that. I'd like to sort of switch gears and talk about the law generally. Uh, transgender lawyers, of course, not unheard of. One of our current CBA board members is trans. And in 2015, we saw another trans member of the CBA, uh, Kale McKenzie, elevated to the bench in Manitoba. But it's still difficult for lawyers from equality-seeking groups in general to fit into law firms. And and I'm wondering how and where transgender lawyers fit. So the world has really changed, uh, and in Canada in particular, um, with respect to awareness of trans people. But that's a very recent phenomenon. Uh, You know, I, I 
I think of uh, the years between 2013, 2012 to 2015 as being the real um, transitional period in terms of trans visibility. Uh, I, before that, I don't think that there was much mainstream awareness of trans people at all. And, and that change has been a positive one. Uh, 2012 was the, uh, the XY decision in Ontario, which uh, struck down a requirement for uh, what was called transsexual surgery, a requirement for transsexual surgery before changing the sex designation on one's birth certificate. And the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal was very clear that uh, people have the right to be uh, respected for and acknowledged in based on their gender identity in their official documents. And that when, uh, when a government gives people identification documents that don't match uh, who they are, that sends a message to the rest of society that invalidates who people are. And what about uh, trans people in Canada accessing legal services? What's that experience been like in sort of your experience? So as, as the project lead of the Transforming Justice Trans Legal Needs Assessment Ontario Project, uh, which is an access to justice project, research project funded by Legal Aid Ontario and the Ontario HIV Treatment Network, um, we did a, a survey and, and, and a number of focus groups with members of trans community as well as legal service providers uh, and interviews with trans people living with or impacted by HIV. And what we heard was that community is, in general, um, very apprehensive about the likelihood that they'll be treated fairly and with dignity when they uh, approach the legal system, whether that's in terms of uh, access to fair adjudication, uh, whether that's access to uh, non-discriminatory uh, legal services. People are concerned that their, their needs and their legal rights um, will not be respected by uh, legal service providers that they've gone to. At, at the same time, people who had had positive experiences with legal service providers were tremendously grateful um, and appreciated what legal service providers had done for them. So I think um, there's a lot of potential for legal service providers to assist trans clients, uh, but there's a lot of work to do to bridge that trust gap. So, I mean, that begs the automatic follow-up question, what can we do to help bridge that trust gap as law firms and other legal organizations in this country? One thing we heard loud and clear was that trans competence or trans inclusivity has to be uh, very visible on the part of a legal service provider. So trans people will assume that a particular legal service provider is not uh, particularly uh, trans aware or, or trans competent unless they see something visible um, in their marketing materials or on their firm website uh, that indicates that they are. Just having a visible indication uh, really has to be met also with intake forms and, and other um, with intake forms that have a variety of uh, gender options um, and an indicator of preferred name, pronouns, those sorts of things. 
accessible and safe washroom spaces. And then in terms of the legal services, uh, being aware of what trans rights, um, so being aware of the law as it pertains to gender identity and expression issues, uh, sort of across the board. And you know, there are cases in criminal and sentencing law, there are cases in human rights and employment law, there, there are family law cases, there are disability cases. Uh, so really knowing the trans cases in your particular practice area is also really important. Um, can you tell us uh, more about where we can find more information about the project that you spoke about earlier? Sure. So the uh, the, the project website is at halco.org, H-A-L-C-O dot O-R-G. And under our services, there's the Trans Legal Needs Project. Uh, and if you click on that page, uh, you'll find our first report and some background information about the project. We're working on the second report and hope to have that out uh, in the new year. Okay. Thank you. Uh, what does the fact that you're trans mean to the way that you go to work and do your job? I'm just wondering if it's a factor for you. So I, th I think as legal service providers, uh, we bring our own experiences uh, to our day-to-day -day work. Um, I think that in, in terms of my practice, so my day-to-day -day practice is focused on family law issues. I work as a staff lawyer of Legal Aid Ontario. Um, I, I'm dealing primarily with uh, straight cisgender people. I've, I've had a few trans clients, I've had a few LGBT clients, um, but, but it's primarily uh, straight cis people. Um, I think what my trans experience has sort of brought me is an understanding that there are some people that are misunderstood um, and it's worth taking the time to, to figure out uh, how people are misunderstood and trying to convey uh, a greater understanding for whatever situation a particular client is in. So can you please sort of explain to our listeners the spectrum of gender identity? Sure, so gender identity refers to a person's uh, inherent sense of self along a gender continuum, so as, as male or masculine, female or feminine, or as uh, something distinct from either of those concepts or a combination of those concepts. That includes people who uh, will identify as uh, men or, or women or as non-binary or as uh, agender. When we were doing the promotion, promotional work for the Transforming Justice Project, I remember one evening going to a, a trans community event and I was handing out flyers and <clears throat> one of the people I handed the flyer to started crying but in fact they said um, that our flyer said agender on it and they identify as agender and they'd never seen that word in any kind of official uh, sort of document or ha having that I, their identity reflected in, in a project that was designed uh, to, to help them and to provide greater access to services that they might need uh, and be comfortable as an agender person. Recognition of people's identities is, is really profound and, and meaningful. And as a follow-up to that point, uh, can you sort of explain the importance of pronoun use in the trans community? You know, I think some people 
uh, think pronoun use is, is a fairly superficial sort of thing. When people are misgendered, when somebody misgenders you as a trans person, what they're really saying is, I don't, I don't see you at all. I don't respect you at all. And I don't appreciate the struggle that you may have gone through to get to a point where you could be open um, and honest about who you are. That act of misgendering really uh, erases the, the whole person. Experientially, that's, that's, a, that's really profound. And, and people told us that especially when it came to interactions with uh, people in, in the legal field uh, and in the justice system, that that kind of invalidation or, or validation uh, was, was even more important. So what can we ask to make sure that we are providing that validation to a trans individual when we encounter them? We, we heard from people that it wasn't necessarily about everybody getting it right all of the time um, and that it was okay to ask somebody what pronouns they use or what name they go by. And if people messed up and that happens, apologizing and, and correcting it you know, goes a long way, right? Because it, it's not about necessarily getting it right. It's about conveying a respect for the person, right? Sort of on a holistic level. So pronoun use is a way to do that, um, but also just expressing your, your respect for the person and acknowledgement in correcting uh, a mix-up, if you have one, is fine. And if you don't know, ask. You've spoken about the evolution that the trans community has experienced over the last few years. What would you like to see as sort of the next phase of that evolution, both in our society and in the law? So what concerns me about the future in terms of, of the law um, is really an access issue that's, that's growing in terms of getting into law school and being and the financial barriers in particular um, that with law school tuition going up exponentially over the last number of years, I think there are real barriers to people from marginalized groups uh, to get into law school. And then for those who do, the ongoing burden of paying off uh, exorbitant student loans uh, is, is also a huge barrier um, and makes it difficult for people to have choice in terms of their practice areas. A lot of really important legal work is not necessarily the most remunerative, uh, but if you come out of law school with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, your choice of what areas to practice in uh, become much more limited. And, and especially in areas where access to justice issues are most critical, um, such as in family and criminal law, uh, immigration and mental health, uh, and, and, other, uh, and other areas like that, the viability, the economic viability of those areas coming out of law school with extensive debt uh, becomes really impractical. There have been really significant advances in substantive uh, 
law and, uh, and rights around gender identity and expression. It was only in 2017 that gender identity and gender expression were included as explicit grounds of prohibited discrimination across, across the country at the federal jurisdiction as well as at every uh, provincial and territorial jurisdiction. So the, the impacts of that, I think, are still uh, yet to be fully realized. Um, and I think that it's, a, it's really a developing area of law. At the same time, um, now that the law is perhaps more, more clear, it's certainly more explicit, it's still an uphill battle for people to be able to access uh, recourse based on the, those laws and policies, right? Um, access to justice is a huge issue. In the Transforming Justice Project, we found that discrimination was the most commonly experienced uh, legal issue faced by our participants. So there's still a lot of work to do in terms of being able to have effective uh, remedies for uh, experiences of discrimination. It's great that the law is, is now more clear, um, and it's good that there's some preventative, uh, there are some preventative measures that are being taken to uh, proactively prevent discrimination from occurring, but it's still going on and people need uh, uh, an effective way to address it. And, and I think we can learn from the Canadian experience that uh, inclusion is good policy. Inclusion means uh, that we have a whole uh, whole groups of people that have been excluded who are now able to participate and contribute um, to you know their professions, to their communities, and to our society, and and bring different perspectives and important perspectives uh, that are for everyone's benefit. And how do you think we can foster that inclusion across the country so that our children live in a more inclusive world? You're asking me to like solve like world peace, world peace. <laughs> how do we get to world peace? Thanks for joining me today, Nicole. It's been a very fascinating conversation and I look forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Thanks, Ray. My guests this episode were Preston Parsons and Nicole Nussbaum. Have you experienced discrimination or exclusion in your law school or law firm because of your gender identity, race, religion, sexual orientation, or other cultural difference? On the other hand, how have you experienced inclusivity? We want to hear your stories. You can reach me on Twitter at, at CBA underscore news, on Facebook, or on Instagram at, at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juriste Branche podcast. Listen for us next time when we'll be talking to CBA members who have been there, experienced that, and have stories to tell about it.